You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds passed right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Major Jones Spencer, you're back again. We had you on uh, one of our earliest episodes, and you told a few stories from um, your first deployment to Iraq, which we're going to kind of revisit. Um, just for context, some of the more recent episodes of The Spear have featured stories of people who have been essentially caught off guard. They've been hit by, we had hit by a Katusha rocket attack, hit by an um, improvised rocket-assisted munition attack, hit by a suicide bomber, and it, it gives the impression of sort of defensive. And while there is, you know, reacting to this contact, um, it, it can suggest that there's not as much deliberate planned offensive operations going on in uh, the types of wars that we've been fighting over the past 15 years, and that's not entirely the case, is it? No, no, and, it, uh, and it's not in a negative way. Um, I'm a big fan of the saying of, you know, war is it's, it's long moments of boredom punctuated by you know, fear. That there's a famous thing, but uh, I want to make sure that we also have the the full spectrum from offensive, defensive, and you know types of combat that missions. I mean, there were times where we, the units I was in, both deployments were doing offensive missions every day, of some type. And so we're going to tell you're going to tell one of the one of the stories from that. Um, just to step back, this this the story that you're going to tell us about um, about this mission was in what December of 2003, right? Yep. About nine months into a 90-day deployment. That's right. Um, and and so you've been in country for about nine months now. Can you talk a little bit about where you are, where in Iraq you are, um, and what uh, what your platoon leader, what your platoon um, was has been doing for nine months? Sure. So yeah, it's during Operation Iraqi Freedom One. So we did the invasion, which I talked about before. Um, the jump in and you know all that goes through the you know, conflict phase now we're in the post-conflict phase and the start of the insurgency so at this point um, my unit had moved south from Mosul um, near an area called Dukuk which if you you're just looking at a rough map of, of, of Iraq you have not Mosul Kukuk I'm sorry so come from Kukuk to Baghdad in between there is a place called Dukuk right along one of the major highways it's called Highway 2 and we're around that area. Um, most people don't realize for a big portion of that, you know, after the invasion, all that stuff, we were doing what's called battlefield cleanup. So the Iraqi army had faded away, uh, melted away, and literally had just taken off their clothes, left them in position, and walked away from tanks, artillery pieces, ammunition depots, 
So we and did. then with debathification, yeah. if they were brought back, they, they were sent home again. So there was really nobody that had ownership or positive control over That's right. a lot of pretty serious military equipment. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, m one of my earliest m the missions I can remember was when we, within the first like three weeks, we occupied an airfield and we just went daily missions of people on five ton trucks would go to a building and remove thousands and thousands of pounds of ammunition and put it on a truck and take it to a bunker. So now we're nine months into the rotation and um, we're in an area that a, an Iraqi division used to occupy. Um, and it literally was what you would think of the desert, as I think I told you before, when I jumped in in the north, there was green, cold. So now we're farther south, and it's literally there are portions that are the rolling desert that you think about. Um, and as we're doing kind of looking what's in your AO, we identified that you have massive Iraqi division positions. So artillery positions with thousands and thousands, literally, of 155 rounds. And for weeks, my platoon was sent on missions to go to those locations and stack 155 artillery rounds in giant mountains and then the EOD would put chains of C4 on them and make really cool light shows that we could back off thousands and thousands of meters and then he would hit explode as we were literally just trying to clean the battlefield of these 155 rounds and we would take some of those Iraqi army people without jobs that you're talking about in five tons so literally like 80 unemployed Iraqi military age males out to these fields and that was our job is they all they did was bring in all artillery rounds put them in a big pile put c4 on them blow them come back the next day and hit repeat what well, you know as time went on the evolution of the improvised explosive device started happening and Iraq, iraqi security forces and u.s military were hitting getting hit by ieds and in the early stages you know most of the IDs were either mortar and artillery rounds rigged to explode either command detonated or other devices. So um, all of these 155 rounds that you guys just end up being picked up, every single one of them is a potential IED that's, right. that's going to blow up a Humvee. And at the time, we still didn't have you know, up-armored vehicles. We didn't have MRAPs in there. So it caused a lot of destruction. So this is a pretty important task that you guys are set to. Yep. And, and without the, you know, and we would find in these early days, we would be driving in areas that we hadn't driven before and find literally a missile, like a SAM missile. It wasn't a SAMS, but it was like, hey, we found a missile at this grid <laughs> and we called in. Okay, we found five uh, 155 artillery tubes pointing in this direction. Uh, okay, uh, destroy them with thermite grenades or C4. Um, so, you know, as we were exploding these, the ID started popping up and it's not like it's hard to get an artillery round in this point in Iraq. Today, you know, it's not the same thing. It's a black market, all this stuff. But literally, you could just drive out to this field and do it. Well, we had gotten an intelligence report that somebody was doing that. In the middle of the night, um, trucks were coming out to those fields, gathering up on five rounds and taking them for illicit purposes. Um, so my company commander authorized me um, to set up a vehicle ambush, basically out in the middle of the desert on these um, unoccupied Iraqi army positions with all these thousands of rounds we still I mean, it was going to take us a long time to get rid of all these but we had this report so i took my platoon of um mounted so we we're an airborne unit but we we're on mounted on vehicles so that's you know basically trucks with big guns on the top of them this is before they were um armor um mine resistant vehicles literally like cargo trucks with big guns on the top of them and we went out on, an, on one night and set up a vehicle ambush position we knew we had seen fresh tracks going to certain areas so we decided 
um, you know, across a wide spectrum that we would set up an ambush on this one spot where we believe trucks were coming in and out of to take these rounds away. Um, so we moved out at, under the cover of darkness. We got into position all blacked out. And like any other ambush, you just sit and you wait for basically enemy activity in where you've set up your kind of kill, what they call kill zone. What was the what was the terrain like here? So is this a big, you know, is this just a big pile of 155s? Is it a field where they're strewn about? And then what kind of cover do you guys have? Are you sitting, are, is it built up? Are you on top of buildings? Are you? you yeah, know, no, it's, this is, I mean, like I said, the desert um, environment. I mean, there's some brushes and things like that. I mean, it's rolling hills. So yeah, these were old artillery positions. They were using the terrain to their advantage and they would fire, you know, if, Iran, you know, invaded. It had this defense in depth, so there was a mountain range on the back backside of it. But like you said, it wasn't there wasn't one single location because you know these the rounds were just everywhere, and that's why we would come out in the day and like send everybody out to collect them all, and bring them back to a single location. We picked a spot that we'd seen these fire track, um, these tire tracks, and I'd set vehicles, you know, with wide distribution um, across, you know, pointing all in one direction. But they're, we're just in the open, you know. We're, we're you're behind an IV line, but enough where we can see on, onto the onto what we call the objective. And so you put your people in, you know, according to uh, TTPs of how you how you lay in an ambush, and then you just sit and yep, wait. Yep, and just sit and wait. Um, at night. At night. Yep. yep under nods, so it's, you know, it's about as dark as it can be. You, you try to pick the you know the darkest night so that your night vision is to your advantage because they're going to use. You know, white lights to drive out there. So, so we, these guys come? Yeah, when they come. No, they don't come. So we have one device, which is, you know, our, our, our biggest night vision site, which is a, it's a, it's a device used for a, a missile launching a javelin. Um, but it's a very powerful site. Um, and so I had set that up on one of my flanks to have the greatest view of where the vehicle might possibly come in. So about... Um, 2,000 kilometers or, you know, o over a mile away, there was a... 2,000 meters. Yeah, 2,000 meters. Um, there's a major highway. On that highway, um, the person with that powerful sight sees some really stuff, weird stuff going on on the highway. Um, I didn't initially hear it, but there was gunfire, and they're on that flank side. They heard that gunfire, and then identified through that sight that there was something going on. Now they started calling is I'm the particularly in charge of the, the overall formation. They start calling to me, um, and they, they basically have eyes on. And, and what it looked like was somebody was stopping vehicles on the highway, um, shooting their guns, and taking people out of their vehicles. And we had had previous reports along that highway, uh, basically highway bandits setting up um, checkpoints, stopping people, you know, making them pay for, for passage or kidnapping people. Um, but so my, my guys report to me that this is going on. They can hear the gunfire. Um, it looks, does not look good. And, and they just keep reporting to me. So I decide to send my platoon sergeant, because he, he was already ready and on his vehicles, because you, you weren't in a certain ready posture. You have some people out kind of laid in position, um, and you have some people on the vehicles ready to go. Um, I decided to take three of the four of my squads. So the platoon sergeant, um, was the most ready um, with what we call our dismount squad and move to that site and see what's going on. And then I got my guys um, who were on the actual positions off and back to my vehicle because I was just manning the radio. Um, so basically you have three vehicles moving that 
2,000 meters to that highway, and then me trailing behind. I'm not caught into the formation. I'm so at this point, you've seen you see this happening yep. a couple kilometers away, and you basically decide, okay, we're done with this mission. This is this is what we're doing now. Yeah, that's right. And I didn't want to leave our position though. I didn't want to. So I left the squad. Mm -hmm. And the, really, the, only, the main reason I left the squad was because it had the clue. And as soon as we you know, packed everything up, we would lose visibility of what's going on. The clue is that big that thermal big, site. Yeah, thermal site. So I left that squad. Plus, there's some stuff we just didn't want to pick up um, that, that was in position. So the fastest way to do is leave one squad to secure that site. And you're right, the ambush was pretty much blown if you know, there's a major something going on on that highway. Um, so we, like you said, we, we saw something happen. Now we're moving to it. It's really as simple as terms of it. Um, so we're moving at a high rate of speed as fast as you can go in a, in a Humvee in a safe speed. Um, get to the highway, and luckily I left that squad, who I don't know if I thought about it at the time, was able to keep eyes on and then see us and kind of guide us to what was going on. Um, but it is really, I'm sure any cop gets this scenario, once you're getting called to something, you don't know what you're, you're going to, it's kind of disorienting. You're moving at a high rate of speed to something. So, and I'm trying to communicate with my platoon sergeants in that lead vehicle. Basically, so we get to the highway, we take a left, uh, and start heading in the direction we think the stuff is. And there's the, the people with the site aren't reporting to us that we're going right or, or wrong direction. Um, so we start going left, turn left, all of a sudden the site people said, hey, there's more gunfire to your, to your right. So we, as fast as you can, turn our vehicles around and turn around and now we're all on the highway headed the other direction, basically to the right, um, and the the site, the people with the site are getting excited and calling reports that, you know, it's going on. You, you're in the going the right direction. My platoon sergeant's in the lead, um, it, going very fast actually. Um, and as soon as he turns a corner on this highway, um, that vehicle, my platoon sergeant's vehicle, takes AK-47 rounds at them. Um, and this is an open skin vehicle, so there's a guy on top with a 240 gun, and the rounds pass right past his head. As soon as they turn this vehicle, and when I, when I explained it to people, it, and I heard it happen, you know, I heard the call, you know, um, contact, 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 um, and it's almost this, oh, no, you didn't type of situation. So whoever fired at us, um, who, they fired at something they saw on the road, not realizing that you just engaged a four-vehicle heavy weapon formation. And it was almost like this overwhelming... Oh, no, you didn't. Uh, so my platoon sergeant, I mean, and then it's just almost like the battle drill that you, you train for and you want to happen versus reacting. It is reactive, but it's, it's reactive contact literally on, on an open area. And so the, two, the person that got hit by the AK-47 didn't hit anybody right past their head immediately stopped and formed basically the, the point where they return fire and opens up with a 240 machine gun in the direction of the AK-47. Well, then more AK-47 returns to that vehicle as the other three vehicles are pulling up. And, you know, of course, this is my memory, um, but the vehicles couldn't have been more beautiful, pulled to the right and left of that lead vehicle and set up a position just like you, you would want them to and start engaging the known or suspected area. So now you have a 50 cal machine gun and another machine gun opening up on the location. Um, I pull up with my vehicle, which I have a Mark 19 um, grenade launcher on top of mine. Um, in my, he does the right thing, and all this is happening almost like a reflex. It was it's really a surreal feeling, and so everybody's opening up fire. My platoon sergeant is already on the ground 
moving the dismounted squad into position to also return fire. I call into my company commander saying, you know, as quick as I can to report to headquarters, I'm engaged in a major firefight um, with, you know, re returning fire. I, I called in a short of breath. He's already on the net. And I remember that he said the one thing that if I was a com commander, which I later was, was almost a perfect answer, um, not a single question. And I've always thought, like, what did it sound like me calling in, trying to call in over the all the gunfire that was happening and saying, I'm in contact. And all he replies back, which I think is a true example of mission command, is acknowledge, let me know what support you need. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and I, to this day, I remember it very clearly. And I was able to just put it down and reconcentrate um, on commanding my forces. So then, so you've got now, they, you turn off the highway, start taking, or start taking fire, your vehicles get online, your platoon sergeant maneuver, starts to maneuver the dismounted element, everything is going exactly as, as, as it should, right? Which you said, <laughs> it looks like a beautiful thing. Um, then what? So then um, I call ceasefire, because you, you, you ain't gonna fire all night. I call ceasefire across the net into my, my elements, because my platoon sergeant has the visibility and says, I see them, they're, they're popping up over a mound. So then we, we reopened fire. Um, and then I call ceasefire again. Um, and then I, and again, this is the beauty of the training is the dismount squad was already ready to move forward and bound across the objective. Uh, so I, and he called to me and said, I'm ready to bound forward. So I, I told that NCO bound forward. So he took his dismount element um, now we're covering his movement. All fire has stopped and started moving forward. Um, and I'm starting to get ready to get out. Of, you know, I'm in a position to hear and see him, even if the radio doesn't work. Well, as he's bounding up, you know, with correct dispersion, just like we train, um, he calls back that there's there's police on the objective. So I, I, I didn't know what to say to that. Because, um, you know, I have this idea of what's on the objective. And he it's calls, bad guys, right? Yeah, bad guys. Lots, lots of bad guys. Yeah. And he calls back, there's police on the objective. So now I'm at this point, I, I move with myself and the RTO to get up closer to him. So basically, he's, he's made it onto what we call, you know, where we think the objective is, and he's moved past it. And, he, and he's going to stop at a certain location past it. Um, but as soon as he gets up to it, he passes the first set of vehicles, and then he says, uh, there's police on the objective. Um, so I bound up with my RTO and my translator, because I, I even had a translator back then. I, first thing I see is a, is a truck, a civilian truck, um, with two people laying in the back of it and one person on the outside of it. They, you know, they look like bad guys. Um, the guy laying outside the vehicle is still alive. Um, and all he's doing is screaming, um, which to me was, you know, was, was something I had to address. So I. You know, they had done the right thing when moving across the trajectory. They had removed the weapons from these people who had AK-47s and, and, you know, kept moving forward. Um, but this guy was, you know, clearly um, not able to be a combatant anymore. Um, but he's just screaming at the top of his lungs. So I bring my translator over. you got to tell him to shut up. And, and I was pretty straightforward with my translator. And I said, what is he saying? And the translator said, well, he's praying. You know, and I didn't think a second about that. I was like, well, you got to tell him to shut up. He's like, he's, sir, I can't do that. And I'm like, tell him he's going to be okay. And I remember this to that day that the translator looked at me and said, he's not going to be okay. Um, 
and, and as I try to remember this instance, I remember that vividly. And I had to move forward to one of my squad leaders. I, I said, tell him he'll be okay. And I, I moved forward to my squad leader. And now I'm passing police cars <laughs> that are in front of the vehicle that um, I had just passed. Um, just for that guy that we passed, when I, by the time I came back to my translator, that, that person was dead. So now I had three confirmed KIAs on the objective. Um, as I move forward, um, I hear the people yelling, police, police, police. Uh, and there's about, I'd say, 15 Iraqi police on the far side of this objective that had jumped behind um, basically some mounds. So it was a really weird-looking objective. Now, I had a vehicle with civilians with AK-47s pointed in one direction, and it had police vehicles pointed in the opposite direction. Of course, now everything's full of holes, so the cop cars are full of holes, the civilian cars are full of holes. And I, and I had to be honest, it, you know, as a leader, you make decisions in combat. It, the first thing that hits me is, is not fear, but um, did we just do something wrong? Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really question it because I knew we had been engaged, but you know, that, that thought had popped into my mind, like, oh crap, these are, there's Iraqi police on the objective. Um, so are you still trying to kind of figure out, were they firing at yeah. us? Did they just get here after the, or were you just trying to piece this together? Yeah, yes. Um, so again, I have great soldiers, great NCOs, and I'm, I'm able to concentrate on trying to figure that out as they're um, disarming the police, um, putting them together, um, consolidating everybody, and, imme- and taking over the objective, and all the training is just kicking in. The police... Uh, do they, how do they react to that, to the U.S. soldiers disarming them? They, they were fine, um, and they were wounded. So there, there were police that were wounded. So we were triaging that, that as well. You know, at this point, I'm doing the right thing, and I'm calling back to what I'm seeing on this objective. And then, of course, like we do in the military, everybody else has launched in response to my incidents. Now I, have, I know the company commanders in route. I know the battalion commanders in route. Um, but, you know, I'm dealing with the immediate scene. The, the cops were very fine and very... Um, you know, hey, Americans, um, they acknowledged immediately that they, shot at, that they shot at us. They did? Yeah. Okay. Did you, and, and prior to this, you know, years later, we would have, you know, partnered operations and those relationships between the, so the sort of military landowner and the local police departments, whatever our security forces are there, are, are central to our you know, strategy in the country. But at this time, did you have a strong link with the police or... We not. did, um, not as strong as, you know, my second tour. You know, back, this isn't at the point where they were trying to find Iraqi police, um, let alone stand up a police station. And that's really at the stage that this, this police station was at, okay. which was, you know, it's a ways away um, from where this incident happened, kind of in the middle of no man's land on Highway 2. Um, so they acknowledged then that, yeah, we, we fired on you. Yep. Did they know who you were? Nope. Okay. And, and of course, it's dark. You know, we're the one... We're the ones with night vision. Back then we had limited night vision, but um, they acknowledged they shot at us and then they weren't mad that we shot them. Yeah. Um, but they couldn't answer the question of what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, what we had saw, um, in hindsight, we, we to this day are unclear if the police were responding to what we were responding to or the police were a part of what we were responding to. Um, but it really weird that the only people that died were the the three people that everybody confirmed were doing be- the bandits of the highway incident. Um, and 
the police never gave a clear of course their going story was that they were responding to something that was happening on the highway um, not that they either knew the people um, or part of it shot at us uh, you know, my battalion commander came out and immediately um, kind of took ownership of that that part of he had me uh, which had happened on other objectives the same way walking through what, what happened um, all the you know outgoing you know from the objective towards us rounds were on the ground the weapons were on the ground um, it was a pretty clear-cut thing you know of course I'm the biggest critic of what happened you know a lot of you know, great things happened and in, in really proud of the men for the way they responded to it um, everything from the way that the squad bounded forward and some one of which I mean they were able to make real decisions on this guy is no longer combatant but this guy is not um, depending on the intensity of the combat, you bound forward and you engage suspected, you know, still threats to you. And they made life and death decisions at their level on, he's no longer a threat to me, or this police, this guy's hand up is not a threat to me. And, and you know, in course with all our values and, and our laws, did all of that. Um, I'm really proud of them for that. Yeah, because, you know, it's, it's sort of a messy situation, right? You yeah. get up on the objective and there are police here, but it, I mean, when you put it that way, you realize how much worse it could have been. Yep. Um, I mean, there's there's a lot of potential for your platoon from the 173rd to have, I guess, been involved in a pretty major incident. And because both your your NCOs and and, and soldiers sort of did what they were trained to do, that kind of it seems like kept that from happening. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you you train them in these things and the rules of engagements and. The, it's all built into the, you know, your, even your battle drills are built in with these um, rules of land law, uh, land warfare that are in there. You see it in action like that where these immediate decisions are having to be made. Um, but the fact, um, yeah. So, you know, now I'm dealing with, I mean, when you open that much firepower up on <laughs> police vehicles, um, the vehicle is pretty much destroyed. I mean, and again, we AR, uh, you do an after-action review of everything we did, and there's there's things I'm very proud that we did, and there's some things that I think, hey, it shouldn't have gone that way. Even where I question the lethality of my organization, you know, luckily it, it didn't go even more lethal. Like none of the police, there were police wounded, but no police um, person was killed. I mean, that was a lot of firepower on that site. Some of it shot over. So. We took that back. And one of the mistakes we made at the very end was um, we teach for, like, when you're on an objective, there's certain um, kind of rules you do with suspected enemy pers uh, prisoners of war. You, you you silence them, you separate them, you segregate, you know. One of the reasons is that you don't want them to collaborate on what their, their story is. And that's what the police were doing in their own language when we bunched them all together and said, okay, sit there while we figure this out. And my first sergeant, and rightfully so, as a new platoon leader, and he said, hey, hey, what are you doing? You know, when he came up on the day, like, why are these people not separated? Um, because they were able to, if there if it was nefarious, they had the ability to, to make a story up and, and get on the same sheet of music. So when the, there was investigations that happened, and like, uh, from every person you would talk to, like, well, what was going on? You know, because we didn't follow those, that the tactic of, of EPWs, they had a chance to do that. So you had uh, a little bit of time left in the deployment. Did you ever get a chance to engage the guys that were stealing the 155s and potentially laying out nope. IEDs? Nope. Never, it, it actually never got reported again. Uh, so oh. 
you know, maybe those people were the ones doing it. But you know, unfortunately, I mean, the whole country was that type of a kind of littered battlefield, littered battlefield at the time. And there were lots of people that were able to just take hundreds of these things and then store them away, and they became issues later. Um, yeah, I mean, from this one offensive operation too, there were something you wouldn't plan on it. The the full spectrum of emotions was happening that night of you know adrenaline to fear of you know, doing the right things as as a leader. Um, but like I said, I, I look back that that incident a lot on things that happened later in my life on the way my NCOs took charge, the way my company commander gave me um, autonomy, a, a lot of it. Well, that's great. Thank, uh, thanks for sitting down and sharing another story from what sounds like it was a pretty eventful uh, first deployment, I guess. Yeah, my, yeah, um, it was unlike any other deployment um, that I've had since because it was everything was new. I mean, you were literally the, going into the places you were the first ones there, and um, there was bad about it, and there was, I mean, it, it was almost like this, this is a modern adventure um, of being part of this thing um, that later evolve into something else, um, but to be a part of that initial year um, and have all these experiences, I, I'm really blessed to have had that Army experience. Well, thanks for sharing with us. Uh, thanks, John. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.